There you go. All right, friends, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It's great to see everybody. On this very rainy Sunday morning, I'm, I'm not wrong here, it's pretty rainy here in the ATL. Okay, um, and get this, today was going to be, it's always like this. What was today going to be? What was I going to do today? Can you guys guess? What was I going to do today? Prayer. Well, what else? What was I going to do outside? Huh? Build a sukkah. Thank you, build my sukkah. Yes. How did you guys know? Today was going to be the big day for me building the sukkah. And I'm not saying it's not going to happen today. But what I am saying is, if it happens, which it will, there is going to be a very soggy rabbi at the end of the experience. Um, but not complaining because rain you is... Do you do it on your patio? No, we do it outside in the... Uh, what's it called again? In the... Um, Yard? Well... I don't know if you know, but behind my house, I have like a really small backyard, but then there's like a gravel patch thing that I that I park on. Yeah, like a, yeah, exactly. So I do it. What is it? Yeah, yeah, it's right off the alley, and it's like a little gravel situation. So, yeah, that's where we are. I can't do it in my backyard. I feel like I just want to bring you guys into the conversation here, because you're not supposed to build a sukkah under a tree. It's supposed to be under the sky, under the stars. And my backyard, the little, the grass part of my backyard has tree coverage. So I move it to the gravel area. Anyway, bottom line is it's going to be a soggy experience unless it clears up today, which who knows? We'll see. According to my weather app, it's supposed to be raining. But rain, oh, here's where I was going to segue to. Rain is always considered to be in Judaism a sign of blessing. So that's a good thing, right? Rain is good, which always, always uh, the contradiction was always stark. I remember as a kid, you know Jewish superstitions? You ever hear some Jewish superstitions like don't walk under a ladder? Maybe that's not exclusively Jewish. I don't know if it is or not. But it's like, maybe it's just like good, good safety protocols. Right, salt and whatever. And then you have, um, what is it? Don't step on a crack? You, no, I'm kidding. That was, a, that, was a, no, that was a joke. That's not a thing. No, no, no. Um, but what other Jewish superstitions are there? I'm trying to think. Um, like Ayan Hara stuff. Oh, like some people don't buy stuff for the kids before the kid is born, you know, like so they don't, yeah, no you know, right, no baby shower, exactly, that sort of thing. Anyway, um, so there is a superstition in Judaism. I'm not verifying it. I'm not validating it. I'm not saying it's legit or not. I'm just telling you what, what's there. Ed, good morning. It's good to see you. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, we're not getting to the study soon. No, I'm kidding. We're, we're going to get there soon. Um, so... <laughs> so there is a tradition that says that if you open up an umbrella in, oh yeah, here, pass one more for Elizabeth. I mean, for Joy. Yeah. So if we, if we what's it called again? If we um, open up an umbrella inside a home, it says it'll rain at your wedding. So we were always told, don't open up an umbrella indoors or else it's going to rain in your wedding. And then it was always like, well, if it rains at your wedding, like different conversation, it's a sign of blessing. It's like, so wait a second. I should or should not be opening up umbrellas. Like, is it a bad thing or a good thing? We don't know. But rain is definitely a sign of blessing, especially on Sukkot. Because on Sukkot, what's the whole idea of Sukkot, of Sukkot, of Sukkot? I'm just going to go like Sukkot at this point. It's that we sit outside and we bask in the, the, the essentially the divine, um, the divine space, the divine space of, of the Sukkot. And the message is that we're making ourselves, pass the tab, please. We're making ourselves a little bit vulnerable. Joy, did it work? Yes. 
Awesome. Okay, perfect. We make ourselves a little bit more vulnerable because we put ourselves out there and instead of, you know, sheltering ourselves in our homes, we say to ourselves and to God, you know what? We are visitors in your world. You're in charge. All right, we're a little vulnerable. We're a little bit, you know, out there in the elements. Nothing says we're out there in the elements as much as a little rain on Sukkot. Now, the code of Jewish law says that if it's raining on, Suk- on Sukkot, on Sukkot, you're allowed to go, you're allowed to leave your Sukkot and go into your house to eat. But what do you think Chabad does? Oh, you think a little rain deters anybody? No way. Rain, you think rain's going to rain on anyone's parade? I mean, it will, but will that stop the show from going on? Absolutely not. Famously, Chabad is uh, a little bit mashuga, as uh, if you know what that word means, about eating in the sukkah no matter what. Some of my fondest memories as a kid, growing up in the Berg and here in Atlanta as well with my own kids, is sitting in the sukkah and it's raining and there's soup I don't know why I always have the visual with the soup because I guess it's already wet and the rain falls into the soup and it's great. Oh, also back in, back in uh, where I grew up in Pittsburgh, we always had, I didn't grow up with the, um, with the mats, the schach mats. Do you know what the schach mats are? Like the, 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 cover, the sukkah covering. They have bamboo mats. Technology is amazing. You can buy bamboo mats, not, not the, 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 like the Home Depot version, but like kosher certified bamboo mats. That's basically the same stuff at Home Depot with a markup. No, I'm kidding. It's like, no, it's like kosher certified made with certain materials and whatever. It's, I'm here all, all week. Anyway, it's like made spe- spe- specifically with special ingredients, ingredients, special materials and whatnot. Anyway, but you can now put out, oh, it's right here. You guys can look right out, right, right over here at the sukkah. You can see they have the schach mats on. Can you see the, the roof um, covering? It's like a little bit, it's a little bit wavy. Okay, when you go outside, you can definitely see it better. It's a schach mat. It's, you, it rolls up, you unroll it. And that's it. It's, it's a ma- that's what you put on top of your sukkah. It's super easy. But growing up, we had to schlep um, branches, like legitimate branches. First of all, we had to take an axe and then go to the forest. I'm kidding. Okay, not to that level. But what we did, we did actually get legitimate branches. I remember, I'm just trying to think. We had it on growing up. We were on the second floor of a duplex. We had a downstairs neighbor. We had the upstairs. And we had a porch that we built specifically for the sukkah. And I'm thinking, how do we get the schach up there if not taking branches, pine branches or whatever, evergreens, through the house? We probably did that, leaving a trail of schach everywhere, <laughs> schach for days as we went through the house. The good news was, as was the custom back in the day, all the furniture had the plastic covering. Remember the furniture with the plastic covering? That was the best. It was the best. I want to do it to my house. I'm telling you, you should see what goes on yeah. with the... With the it's, it's so uncomfortable. It's unbelievable. I used to sit down and just, you just would slide a little bit. Sweaty. I used to stick to it. Yeah, well, you would either stick or slide. It's like either one, but either, comfort is not... But, but I could just, just my own experience now with, uh, with kids and whatnot, when you have a fabric situation, man alive, I'm like, give me plastic. I'll take the plastic. I'll take the plastic. Give me plastic for another 10 years, we'll take the plastic off. You know what? Please, God, you're right. Keep the plastic on. Let's go. Let's keep the plastic. Okay. So what's the point? The point is that we used to have the schach with pine. I don't know what kind of tree it was. Whatever trees grew in, uh, in Pittsburgh. But it had like the, pine, the green stuff with the pine needles. It smelled nice. But when it rained, oh boy, you got extra, extra um, flavor in your soup. You got, it's like I have chicken soup. With uh, maybe uh, dill and maybe rosemary. I don't know if rosemary goes in soup, but dill, dill, dill we usually put in. Plus, schach, a little, a little pine action. 
All right, but, but Chabad stays in the sukkah. For the rain or snow, it's like the... Yeah, you could. Yeah, that's not a problem. You could wear it. Yeah, for sure. You don't have to, like, just go totally, you know, be... So Chabad doesn't sleep in the sukkah. You're asking good questions. This is a very good question. It says in the Code of Jewish Law that you're supposed to sleep in the sukkah. Chabad doesn't sleep in the sukkah. And we know that the reason why Chabad doesn't sleep in the sukkah... Oh, Adam's here. The reason why Chabad does not sleep in the sukkah is not because, like, oh... Like it's uncomfortable, because unco- uncomfortable, we eat in the rain. What do you mean uncomfortable? Hey, Adam, good to see you. So it's not about comfort. The reason is, as the, the Rebbe once said, is because the sukkah has an incredible degree of spiritual energy in it. It's called, because you guys know Kabbalah, it's called um, um, the level of, well, Bina, right? You know the 10th Sefirot, Yechachma, Bina. So it's Makifim the Bina. It's like the supernal element, the supernal realm of Bina is shining in the sukkah. Now, what that means on a practical level, who knows? But what, no, I mean, but what it means is there's a very lofty spiritual energy there. And so in the language of the Rebbes, the Chabad Rebbes, I'm Yiddishizing here for a second, or this is the original phrase, how can you sleep in that space of Makifim Dabina? How can you sleep in that space? In other words, imagine you were at, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a good example. Imagine you were in the White House, or imagine you were uh, in the King's Palace. I mean, could you just like nod off and fall asleep? It's probably not going to happen, because it's such an awe-inspiring experience. Okay, maybe better example, I don't know, better for me, right, Sunday, football, Super Bowl. You're at the Super Bowl on the 50-yard line, right, fourth quarter. Are you going to fall asleep? You're not falling asleep because there's action going on. So the same thing is true in the sukkah. There's so much action going on. So number one, we don't want to leave it, even if it's raining, because who cares? You ever go to Green Bay for a football game? I didn't, but people do this. You know how cold it is in Green Bay? It's like minus whatever. They're not, it's not slowing them down. They're, they're, they're Packers fans. They're, they're, they're sitting through that game. So that's, yes, you guys with me on this? Football analogies? All right, just checking in. So that's number one. So if when it's raining, that's it. Right? It's, you just rub, rub some dirt in it and you keep on going, number one. And number two, you can't sleep. Because how can you sleep? So either you can stay in the sukkah and not sleep, or you can steal away to the house where you can sleep and then come back to the sukkah. Either way, the sukkah is a beautiful, a beautiful mitzvah. But I want to speak today, I want to focus our conversation. So you got some, we got some sukkah action in there. But I do want to focus the conversation on prayer. This is a very important topic, and it's a topic actually that's in a very interesting way, very timely. The Rebbe spoke about prayer on the yard side of his mother, which is the sixth day of Tishrei. So when is the sixth day of Tishrei? So Rosh Hashanah is day one and two of Tishrei. Yom Kippur is day 10 of Tishrei, right? I don't know what I'm doing with my hands here, but whatever. But in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is day six. And that was the Rebbe's mother's yard site. The Rebbe's mother was a very, very special woman. She, um, I feel like I mentioned this recently, but I don't remember in which context. She, she, her husband was a great rabbi. Her son, of course, was a rabbi, but her husband was a great rabbi who was arrested by the communists and exiled to Kazakhstan, where he basically died of, he got malaria. I, I don't know, he, he got, they, they really tortured him. They really, they really did him in. Um, he eventually died in exile, but his wife, his wife um, self-exiled to be with him. But they didn't tell her where, he, where they took him. They came one day or one night and they took him away and that's it. What, you think they leave messages? Oh, like, oh, your husband's here. This is the KGB. 
back in the 19, uh, what was it, 1930s. They're not going to tell you, they're not going to give you like, oh yeah, here's where you can, here are the hours of visitation and calling. People disappeared and they were gone forever. She knocked down every single door in Moscow and whatever, St. Petersburg, whatever the, Leningrad, whatever the places were, she knocked down, down every door. She eventually found him and she moved there to, into exile. That's it. She was with him. And, uh, and she was there with him, and, and he passed away, and then ultimately she moved to New York, to Brooklyn, to be with her son, to be with the Rebbe. When, 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 the, when the Rebbe's mother passed away, so obviously the Rebbe would always, Fabrang would always hold a special gathering on her yard site. The Rebbe started a series of special talks in her honor, which went on for years, about Rashi. The Rebbe's insights into Rashi began following the passing of his mother and tribute to his mother. He would give special talks elucidating and expounding upon the Rashi of that Shabbat of the Torah portion. And we have some of the greatest insights into Rashi's commentary from those talks that happened in the merit of the Rebbe's mother, in the memory of the, of the Rebbe's mother. But getting back to the point um, that I, about prayer, the Rebbe's mother's name was Chana. She's known as, she's known as Rebetzin Chana. Her name was Chana. Of course, Chana is a biblical name. Who was Chana in the Bible? Chana was the wife of the high priest Eli. This is in the book of, book of Judges, I want to say, I think. Yeshua Shaiftim. Book of Judges. Yeah, Joshua, Judges, probably Judges. And um, it says over there that there was, a, there was a high priest. His name was Eli. And he had two wives. A wife named Penina and a wife named Chana. And Penina had children and Chana did not. And Penina, there are different ways of interpreting it, but Penina would sometimes chide, maybe chide is the right word. Yeah, Chana for not having, I have children, you don't have children, you know, that sort of thing. Now, some commentators explained that she was really doing it in a positive way. Now that's to try to get Chana to pray, to, you know, to open up her heart, whatever it was. I don't know. I can't comment on that. I can just say that she was chided a little bit, uh, one chided the other. Anyway, the story goes that Chana, the, the wife of Eli that did not have children, Chana visits the tabernacle. This is before King Saul and King David and King Solomon and the, and the Holy Temple. So basically this is after the Jews are in Israel, but before the Jewish monarchies were established and before the Holy Temple was built in Jerusalem of stone. So they still had the portable sanctuary, the Mishkan, that Moses, remember the one that Moses built in the desert? Yeah, the Mishkan. So it went into Israel with the Jewish people, and it was, it was stationed for a while, but it was still that original portable sanctuary. So eight, then there was, and there was a high priest. In other words, things functioned even before the temple was built in this somewhat temporary fashion. Okay. So what happens is she makes a pilgrimage, Chana, makes a pilgrimage to the temple, uh, to the Mishkan, the sanctuary. And, and she prays. And, and the, the scripture tells us that she prayed, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have the exact uh, verses in my, in my head you know, memorized, but she prayed in a, um, it says she prayed, her lips were moving, but there was no voice. Ailey, the high priest, observed this woman who was praying, kind of by herself, right there in the, in the, in the, in the temple, and her lips were moving, but there were no sounds that were audible. So he was very confused. Ailey was very confused because that's not how 
people typically prayed. Um, and he goes over to her and says, you know, if you're intoxicated, you really shouldn't be here. That's what he tells her. If you're intoxicated, you shouldn't be here. He thought she was drunk because she was like moving her lips and not saying anything. He thought she was like in an altered state of... So she says, I'm not drunk. You, you, you got me... You're assessing the situation incorrectly. I'm not drunk. Rather, I'm someone who's pouring out my heart to, to Hashem, to God. And he says, okay, and they have a conversation. Again, I don't remember the exact dialogue back and forth, but there's definitely an accusation. And she explains herself, and he says, okay. And she prays for a child. And indeed, a year later, whatever it is, she has, she has a child, a boy, a baby boy. Oh, obviously. Huh? Shmuel. Shmuel. Samuel. The prophet Samuel. This is the origin story of the prophet who anointed King Saul and King David. This is Samuel, Shmuel Anavi. Samuel the prophet is born from Chana, from this prayer. And indeed, it says in scripture that what happens is his mother Chana brings him back. I don't know, he might have been two or three years old to the Mishkan, to the sanctuary, to the tabernacle, and brings him back to Eli, to that high priest, and says, raise him, raise him in the temple. She wanted him raised, steeped in that holy environment. Maybe she even told him that if I have a son, maybe she, maybe she even told him, she did, yeah, she told him originally, if I have, I'm praying for a child, and if I have a child, I'm going to bring him back to the... And that's what happened. And he grew up to be this Samuel, the dude. I mean, right? Shmuel mm Anavi, -hmm. like the greatest of the great. So that's the story. So what's, what's in, what's in, the, the story is intriguing on many different levels, and, and I do want to speak on a few different things. But one point about prayer that I want to mention right now so you know where we're going with this is that we learn how to pray from Chana. The Talmud says the way we pray the Amidah, you know what the Amidah is? The standing, we call it, some people call it the silent prayer. Well, it's not exactly silent, but it's meant to be almost whispered kind of with lips moving, but no one else can hear it. What does it sound like? Chana's prayer. We learn, we derive the protocol for prayer. When I say prayer, I mean the Amida, like the, the, the prayer of the service. We derive the laws, the protocol, from the way Chana prayed. It's amazing. It's a beautiful thing. There are multiple laws that are derived. We stand still, we have our feet together, we move our lips, and we're supposed to be able to hear ourselves, but not project it where everyone hears. So if you go to a synagogue, like if you go, to, if you go by us, so you'll hear the rest of the davening, it's pretty loud. It gets pretty, pretty loud. The Amidah begins, it's quiet. It's not meant to be super, it's not meant to be silent, like silent, silent. It's not just like a silent meditation. It's, you do say the prayers, but instead of saying, Shema Yisrael Hashem Hashem you say, you whisper it to yourself, not to yourself. You whisper it to Hashem and to yourself, but so you can hear it, but not everyone else. No interruptions. Yeah. No, no interruptions. You go, right? The protocol is people come over and say, um, have you been drinking? No, I'm kidding. No, <laughs> now, we don't learn everything from that story, but we do learn how to pray from her prayer, which is a beautiful thing. And the Rebbe would, the Rebbe would speak about this on, on his mother's yard site because his mother's name was Hannah, so he would speak about her 
you know, who she was named for, ultimately, right, originally the original Chana, and how it's important this time of year to focus on prayer, and how we pray on the high holidays. The Rebbe also spoke about, uh, interestingly, on why, why is it that we pray for our own needs on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? We ask for the things that we need. You would think we would be only focusing on Hashem, on God, and bigger things. The Rebbe explained that prayer is really about we, we, we speak to God, and we, we were so in that space of connection with God. Sorry, let, let, me, let me back this up for a second. Hold on, let me back this up. I feel like I'm, I'm like way too deep in, and let, let, me, let me give some background. Ailey accuses Khan of being drunk. So the commentaries wonder, how could he be so off on his assessment? That's not like, oh, I thought you were... Um, Cheryl, your Chana, oh, I can't, couldn't recognize it. It's been 20 years. That's like a little, that's like a mistake people make about people, right? You misidentify someone. But he thought she was intoxicated. And meanwhile, she's praying this beautiful, pure prayer that we learn how to pray from her. How could he be so off? So it's explained in Kabbalah as follows. He wasn't actually accusing her. He didn't believe she was actually intoxicated with, with, um, with wine. Right, with alcohol. He believed that she was inebriated or intoxicated with a self, with, with, the, with the needs or the wants of self. In other words, he thought she was being self, I don't know, self-centered or self, um, what's the right word here? Maybe self-centered. He, he in other words, according to this explanation, he knew she was asking for a child. But he thought, you're coming to the temple and standing before God to ask for something that you want? That's very selfish. You stand before God, speak about God, speak to God. But to ask for something that you need, why do you come here to ask for something that you need? That's not the appropriate setting. So she tells him, and I, again, I wish I had the exact quote in front of me, she tells him essentially, I'm not asking for myself, right? I'm asking for a child who will be dedicated to a higher cause. In other words, there's two ways to ask for personal blessings. Here's where, here's, and this is where I was going a moment ago. There's two ways to ask for personal blessings. One way is, I want it, so I'm going to ask for it. The other way is, God, you want it. In other words, I could ask for money two different ways. God, give me money. Or I could say, God, you want me to do good in this world. Yes? Yes. In order to do good in this world, I need resources. Yes? Yes. So hook me up with the resources so I can do good in this world. Right? Health. It's either I want health because I want to be healthy, or God, you put me here for a reason. And I have more to do. I have more work to do in this world. So give me health, not for my sake, but for your sake. In fact, we say that in the prayers on, on, on the high holidays. Right? Give us not for our sake, but give us the blessings for your sake. In the last of Vinamankeno, we say, give us the blessings for your sake. Reminds me of a very powerful story that I've heard Rabbi Shusman tell many times. Do you remember Harvey? Oh, yeah. Harvey Siegel? Yeah, Harvey Siegel. Correct. Yeah. Sure. Sadina Mak remembers Harvey Siegel. I don't remember Harvey Siegel because he had passed away before we moved here. Yeah, that's where um, Rabbi Schusterman, after he left Anji, Chabad was in Harvey Siegel's home. That's yeah. where Chabad started. In his living room. Yeah. 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 Chabad in town started in Harvey, what was his wife's name? 
Oh, his wife? I can't remember. Harvey and Sarah? Sarah Siegel? Sarah, right? Yeah, maybe that. Sarah, yeah. Uh, Harvey and Huh? Alan Sherman thought Harvey and Sheila. I think she was Sarah. Anyway, from the, from the stories. So Chabad in town started off as part of Anshi Sfard, and then it moved off, and then it was in their house, and then we got the place on, on Ponce. Imagine what he's created. Rabbi, imagine what he's done. Rabbi Shusman tells a story about Harvey Siegel, who passed away from, uh, from cancer. That he was battling. He was battling, battling. And Rabbi Shusman was going to, um, to New York to visit the Rebbe's burial site, to the Ohel. And you know, it's a, it's a special place to ask for blessings. So he asked Harvey, would you like to, to write a request for a blessing and I'll put it in for a blessing. That's what's done. He said, sure. He writes, a, he writes a letter. Harvey writes a letter, puts it in an envelope, gives it to Rabbi Shusman. Rabbi Shusman asks him, the tradition is, that when you, when you place the, the prayer, you typically read it, unless it's meant to be private, and then I won't read it, I'll just put it there without reading it, or would you like me to read it? So he said, Rabbi, do whatever you want. I'm just, I've heard this story many times from Rabbi Shusman, so I'll tell you what he says. So of course, I opened it up. <laughs> so he, he opened it up. And it was a short, it was like one line. It's one line. Dear Rabbi, this is what Harvey Siegel wrote. I don't know if you know the story, but this is what he wrote. Dear Rabbi, I have more work to do for Chabad. Please give me a blessing for good health. That was it. Very touching, very moving. I mean, very like... But that was the prayer. Not for himself. And it's unbelievable. It's like that... It's not like an ancient story. It's not like a story that goes back, you know, 2,600 years. Chana and Ailey and the, the high priest and the, and the, the tabernacle and, uh, and Shiloh, wherever it was. This is, we're talking about 20 years ago. Yeah. <sighs> Dear Rebbe, I have more work to do for Chabad. Please give me a blessing or please ask for a blessing for my health. And that's, the Rebbe explained, that's the way we daven. That's the prayer of Rosh Hashanah, of Yom Kippur, and the Amidah every single day. Imagine the Amidah, which is the height of prayer. We stand before God. We stand like an angel with our feet together. We don't shout. We don't scream. We say our prayers softly because we're standing face to face with God. And what are we asking for? We ask for wisdom. We ask for health. We ask for blessings and prosperity. We ask for the physical stuff. Why are we asking for physical stuff? Standing before God, the Amidah. And the answer is, as the Rebbe explained it, because we're not asking for ourselves selfishly. We're asking as servants of God. In other words, you hired us. I don't know, hired. You assigned us a task. You gave us a mission. Perfect. Here's what I need to get the mission done. And that's what we're saying in the Amidah. That's what we say in Rosh Hashanah. That's what we say in Yom Kippur. So what's the power of personal prayer? It's not done from a selfish place but from a selfless base. It could be the same ask. In other words, the end of the day, the ask is the same. But it's the intention behind the ask that can make it a completely different experience. Does that make sense? Do you say to God, if it be your will? You could say, sure. Or you could say, the way I see it on the ground is, this is what I need to get it done. It's like a contractor, right? You hire a contractor to, to renovate something. 
right? This is not my field, so I'm just going to make up stuff. So you hire a contractor to renovate stuff. So the, the contractor says, sure, I'm, I'll do it. Here's what I need. Is he being selfish? Not being selfish. You want him to do a job, this is what he needs to get the job done. He's just being practical. So is it, if it be your will, that's almost too apologetic. It's like, you okay, you could be nice also to God. That's okay. But it's also okay to be a little, a little assertive and say, look, Hashem, you put me here for a reason. I have good stuff to, to get done. Here's what I need. Not in a, not in a you know, but in a, in a straightforward way. That's what the Amid is. And that's why, again, it's almost, the way the Rebbe frames it in his sixth of Tishrei on the anniversary of his mother's talk, talk the way he frames it in that talk is, he, as a question, how is it that at the height of the day of Rosh Hashanah, when we're thinking about God as king, we're asking personal prayers. How is it that at the height of our, our daily prayers at the Amidah, we're asking for personal stuff? It doesn't make any sense. And the answer is, because when we're asking those things, it's not a personal request. It's a mission-oriented. It's not selfish-oriented. It's mission-oriented. It's, it's the same, I need this, but from a completely different place. So, that's a little bit about the prayer about prayer as derived from Chana, which is why the Talmud and Tractate Brachot, page, I, just, I looked it up yesterday, 28b, I want to say, a very interesting section of the Talmud Brachot, a lot of interesting conversations there, but amongst them, it says that when one prays, one should not raise their voice in prayer. And it's referring specifically to the Amidah, that when one is praying, one sh and we talked about this already this morning, one should not raise one's voice. We derive it from Chana. It would be considered, it's interesting, because the, phrase, the phraseology of the Talmud is, it's, it demonstrates that one is of, of, of low faith, or of little faith, if one raises one's voice in prayer. Why? Because it almost makes it, almost makes it sound like you don't believe that God can hear you unless you're shouting. Right? It's like, God, here's what I need. Right? It's like, I'm right here. <laughs> it's like, do you believe, am I here or not here? Like, is it re am I real or not real? If I'm real, you don't need to shout. If I'm not real, the shouting is not going to help anyway. So that's the idea, as the Talmud says, why we don't raise our voice. The, the, we model it for Chana, but the concept, the, the philosophy behind it is because there's no need to shout. God is right here. Don't. That's reason number one. Reason number two is the um, pagan worshipers used to shout when they served their idols. You know the story of um, Elio Anavi, Elijah the prophet. So Elijah lived. You know Elio Anavi, Elijah the prophet? He comes to the Seder, he drinks our wine, and then bounces. He's never shown up. Never closes the door. Ask, never closes the door when he got. <laughs> exactly. That's a good one. Yeah, we always have to close the door after him. Unbelievable. No, but it's like, um, as kids, you, we had the cup of Elijah on the table. We would always, like, shake the table a little bit. Like, oh, my gosh, the wine is definitely not as high as it, as it was. He must have come here. No, but Elijah the prophet, he comes at the bris. He comes at the seder. When, when else does he show up? Bris, seder, whatever. Anyway, so uh, uh, during his lifetime, the... The scripture, scripture tells us that there was a lot of idol worship going on amongst the Jewish people. There was a lot of worship specifically of the Baal. The Baal was, a, was an idol. The Baal. That was the preferred idol to King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Ahab and Izebel. That was their thing. 
and they, they were pro-Baal, and a lot of people were pro-Baal, and Elijah the prophet was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, haven't you read the mission statement? We're monotheists. We don't worship idols. But everybody was worshiping idols. It was, it was crazy. Anyway, so at some point, um, Elijah decided to do a public, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what you want to call it, public um, debate, but not really debate, public spectacle, where he invites 250 priests of the Baal, of this idol, up on Mount Carmel, and he goes up there as well, and he says, you guys are going to set up an altar with wood and whatever and an offering and all that stuff. Set it up. I'll set one up also. And you guys pray to your God. Oh, and we'll have all the stuff there except for a fire. So all the, all, everything will be there except for actual fire. And you'll pray to your gods or God, whatever, you, whatever your thing is. And I'll pray to Hashem. And we'll see. Whoever can produce the fire, miraculously, right, is the one that is true. And they're praying, and they're praying. They go first. They're praying, they're praying, they're praying. Nothing. Garnished. He said, shout louder. Maybe you're, And they're shouting. He's like, shout louder. Maybe your gods can't hear you. Maybe you're being too quiet. And then they're done. They can't make it happen, obviously. And then he, I think he even took water, and he poured it on the wood. Just like a like total, like, not a stunt. I don't want to say stunt in a negative way, but like public spectacle, like front, front page of the newspaper, like... Elijah goes up there to his altar, pours water on the wood, <laughs> soggy wood, just in case you thought there was like some sort of like hidden fire under there or something. Now it's doused. He davens to Hashem, the fire comes down, boom. And everyone's like, oh, and you know what the people said? What we say on Yom Kippur at the end of davening, Hashem hu Elohim, God is God, right? Like God's legit. That's what we say at the end of, seven times, at the end of the Yom Kippur Ni'ilah. We say Shema Yisrael once, Baruch Shem Kavot three times, and Hashem Hu Elokim seven times. That line, Hashem Hu Elokim, God is God, or the Lord is God, whatever you want to translate it, that's what they said upon seeing this, that Hashem brought down this fire through Elio, through Elijah the prophet, etc. So Elijah brings down this fire, and, uh, and, and, and it's amazing. It's an amazing spectacle. Um, why did I speak about Elijah? I'm trying to retrace my footsteps now. Why were we speaking about this? Help me out here, guys. Speak. Oh, good. thank you. Thank you. Because they were shouting. They were shouting to their, to their idol. And Elijah prayed softly. So here we have this idea that praying loudly is, a, is, is the way that the idol worshippers, the pagan wor idol worshippers, that's how they roll. But monotheists, right? The Jewish tradition is we pray softly. Chana prayed softly, etc. So that's, that's the distinction. So the Talmud, again, just to, to, just to get everything clear here. We have the, the, the scriptural story of Chana. We have the tradition of prayer. The Talmud and Tractate Brachot, which is really all about prayer, prayer protocol. It says that when we pray the Amida, we do it in a soft way. We do it in a, in a, in a quiet, quieter way than loud because shouting or, or speaking loudly would indicate a lack of faith in God that God can hear. And it's also the way of idolaters. Good. And that's what we pray throughout the year, with one exception. And that's what we're going to get to today. There's one exception. There's certain times, uh, certain times of the year that we're allowed to, and even supposed to, pray a little bit more loudly the Amidah. When? 
this time of year? Well, okay, we just, we just passed it. The high holidays, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It says in the Code of Jewish Law that we're allowed to and even encouraged to project our voices a little bit louder in the Amidah. The question we're going to deal with in Discourse 11, which we're starting today, in our text is, why is it that, oh, and it's 24B, not 28B. Why is it that the protocol changes for the high holidays that we're allowed to pray and maybe even encouraged to pray the Amidah a little bit more loudly than usual? Why does it change? Now, if you were in synagogue, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you might have noticed that it was still quiet. But the Code of Jewish Law says that you can actually go a little bit louder. The question is, why? That's what we're going to address today. In order to, to address it, I want to just reset very quickly one idea that we shared last time, last week at Kabbalah and Coffee. And that is, I spoke about like the arc of Jewish history and, and challenges in Jewish history. And, and I explained that the challenges themselves bring out this idea that we're in a close relationship. In other words, with God. And the example that I gave was when it comes to a parent. When a parent, a, a parent and a child. So when it's your child and you see your child doing something they shouldn't be doing, so you'll tell them, hey, you know, you, wanna, you might want to correct that or you, you need to correct that. When it's someone else's child, <laughs> loves them gain. Like, all right, it's fine. It's like, all right, you, you do you. Why? Because it's not your kid. Now, should you care about other kids? Sure. Should you want to see the best? Sure, theoretically. But the level of, of your guidance is going to be different when it's your kid or someone else's kid. You're not going to guide someone else's kid. It's like someone else's kid, right? You still care about them, but it's not, not on the same level. So the idea is that we're in a tight relationship with God to the point that God tells us what to do, what not to do, Right? What to eat, what not to eat, when to do this, when to do that, how to do this, how to do that. Right? You look at Torah and Mitzvot, you get all these details about how to live. It's like, <laughs> enough already. No, because I care about you, God says. This is the protocol. So the message that we explained last week is that sometimes the, what we consider to be the burden or the, the difficulty is actually a sign of love as well as the, the correction also is a sign of love because you're only corrected, ideally, when you're loved. Or correction ideally comes from, from, from a space of love. So the punishment, so to speak, or the negativity, the, consequence, the negative consequences that Torah speaks about that have befallen our people, etc., you can look at the deeper idea of, of the trauma and the deeper idea is love. Again, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to, want to explain that from A to Z today because we did it last time. But again, the core idea is that when you love, you're going to correct. If you don't love, then you're not going to correct. But correction sometimes is painful. I gave the example of braces, right? The pulling, yanking the teeth in a certain place that they, the teeth are not naturally going. It's difficult. It's painful. The child is in pain with that correction. But it's for a good reason, right? Because you care about the child, so you, you wanted that, that correction. And the child experiences it as pain. But you say, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't give you this pain. I mean, it sounds crazy, right? It sounds almost crazy. If I didn't love you, I would, if I didn't love you, I would give you candy all day. I would give you, if I didn't love you. But because I love you, it, it may not feel so comfortable. Right? D different examples. Mm -hmm. The point is, when you're in a relationship, 
It's not all fun and games always. When you're in a relationship, sometimes it's difficult. But the difficulty is a sign of the love and the, and the, the closeness of the relationship itself. Yeah. Does it have like um, uh, your rod and staff, they comfort me? Um, if you consider that rod and staff to be of a, sorry for walking while I'm addressing, just grabbing a cup of water. Um, if we consider that rod and staff of the, like the, the stern version of that, sure. I always thought of rod and staff maybe as more of a, um, a walking stick, maybe, but maybe not. I don't know. I would have to look in the commentaries. That's how I always related to it. But I might be wrong. I'm not necessarily saying that, that my take on it is correct. But it could be that. It could be that. The idea, look, you know, it says when Mashiach comes, we'll look back and say, we'll look back at all the challenges in our history and say, ah, you know, we'll understand the necessity or the, the, the benefit of it. God forbid for us to say now, oh, this was for that and that was for that because we're still in it, then we can't, it's not, it's not appropriate to do that right now. So, look, it's, it, it makes sense that a child, go back to the, bra I feel like the braces example is probably the easiest one to, to relate to. It, it, it's appropriate for the child to feel the pain. If the child doesn't feel the pain, that means there's no adjustment happening, right? It means that it's, it's not doing anything. If it's doing something, it hurts. And if it do, it's doing something and it hurts, it's because of the love. It's because of the love. It's not because I, I don't love you, therefore there's the adjustment. I love you, and, th and that's why it's happening. Okay. So essentially what we explained is that because of our relationship with God, so therefore we have the rules, and therefore we have the consequences, and we have the correction, and we have the adjustments, right? I feel like I'm speaking like a chiropractor. Right? We have the adjustments that need to be made because of the love. Not because of anything else, because of the love, because of the, 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 the closeness of the relationship. The nature of close relationships is that you don't need to shout, right? When you're in, getting back to the prayer. Because we're in a close relationship with God, so there's no reason to raise our voice in prayer. So why is it that sometimes we do raise our voice? That's what we're going to address in Discourse 11. Okay, so let's jump in. Um, Adam, do you have 11? That's, it's brand new for today, so probably not. Um, it, did everyone get an 11? Yes? Okay. I think so. I'm going to pull it up on the screen so that everybody on Zoom can join in as well and be on the same page here. Let's see. Discord. Oh, that's 12. Let's get back to 11. All right. We are on page 168. Discourse 11. Chapter 1. Great voice in prayer. Here we go. Thus it is written. This is from Nehemiah 9.4. They cried out in a great voice to their God. Now what, may we want, what we may wonder is the meaning of great voice. So again, the verse says that the Jewish people cried out with a great voice to God. The Rebbe Rashab, the author of this text, is asking, what kind, of, what kind of great voice? Why are they crying out with a great voice? Why not? Because the Talmud cautions us in Brachot 24, that should be 24b. The Talmud cautions us in, in Tractate Brachot that, quote, one who prays with a loud voice is small in faith. And this is what I was quoting before, right? If you pray, pray with a loud voice, it's like you don't believe that God can hear you. It's like, why are you shouting? I'm right here. And whoever raises his voice in prayers of the false prophets, as I told you the other story with the Baal and, and Elijah the prophet, that 
They were the ones that shouted to their false gods in prayer, not Elijah. So one who shouts the prayers, one who prays with a loud voice, is either small in faith or like uh, one of the idol worshippers. Either way, it's not a good thing. So why in Nehemiah, why does it say that they cried out in a great voice to God? Rashi supports this with the verse from the book of Kings they called with great voice, which may be from that story. In other words, they, the, the idol worshippers, called with a great voice, but not, 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 not monotheists. Still, and this is where the question comes in, still it is customary to worship aloud on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. As Beit Yosef states in Arachim, it says in the Code of Jewish Law. So the que- you may not see a question mark there, but this is a question. The question is, why is it that in Nehemiah it says they cried out with a great voice to God? Why is it that on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur on the high holidays, we pray, we worship aloud with a louder voice than typical? Why do we do that if we know that we're supposed to pray in a soft voice, in a quiet voice? In Magi and David, let's continue. In Magi and David by Radvaz, Radvaz was a great uh, halachic uh, expert. In Magi and David by Radvaz, number nine, it is written the following. Let me tell you something wondrous I derive from our sages' words. Listen to this. This is about the power of speech and, uh, and projection. Words uttered by man. It means by human being. Words other, uh, uttered by human beings leave an impression in the atmosphere. Isn't this great? Um, I'm going to read to you the Hebrew for a second. The Hebrew is um, something that comes out of the mouth of a person who nirsham ba'avir. Nirsham is like a reshima. It's like um, it leaves a residue. Ba'avir. Avir means in the atmosphere. So it, 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 an impression. It leaves an impression in the atmosphere. They pierce. The words pierce the air and heavens to ascend. If the words are good and proper and are uttered in sanctity, they are presented to he who spoke and created the word. Now, they're presented to the one who created everything through speech, which is God. Therefore, all Israel are accustomed, when crying out in distress, to call in a strong voice, to make a strong impression and pierce the atmosphere. So the Radva says that since words are all words, all the time, words create an impression in I don't know, you help the universe, in the atmosphere, in the world. That's the nature of speech. Which I feel like I want to elaborate on that before I even move further in this. Let me just, re, let me just like, kind of wind the tape back a half a second and, and elaborate on that. A lot of times we think that words don't matter. Right? What was the famous the line as kids that we had? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. It's whether words hurt one or not. I mean, whatever, that's... That's another, it's another conversation for another time, but words are not meaningless. Words, and it's not just words because someone hears it. Words create something in, in, in the environment itself. In other words, if we were to ask, ask the philosophical question about um, chopping the tree. You know the one if you cut down a tree in a forest and no one's around, does it make a noise? You know that famous question? If you say something not nice in a forest, and no one's around, does it matter? The answer is yes. Why does it matter? Who does it matter to? Not just to you, and not just to them, even though the them is not there, but it matters in an absolute way. It matters because words create something. It's like we know that our actions 
create change in the world, right? You do something, you, 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 you took something and you, you made a change in the physical world through action. Speech also makes change. Speech also creates change in our world. So, hey, good to see you. Good morning. Yeah, it's in the, it's in the office. It, it, let me know if you need access, because I can give you this to beep in. Sure. Um, words matter, not just to the, to the other one that heard it or, or spoken about, not just to ourselves who are uttering it, but words create a reality in the world itself. It actually creates something. Even if we can't see it, it doesn't mean it doesn't create it. Um, David, who's here with us on Zoom, they, I remember David brought a book to Chabad. This is the old building. About And David, maybe you can remind me about this. The way we speak to water or something created a distinction in the actual molecular makeup of the... Help me out here, David. Right, right. There were, um, the crystal structure would look different if you had uh, like pleasing music versus uh, uh, hard rock, metal, uh, whatever. That was, yeah, that was kind of a cool thing. That was a Japanese study. Yeah. So like the, the words and the, the, the sound waves in the environment actually make, actually create, actually have an effect. Sometimes we think like if I can't see it, it's not real, it doesn't exist. That's not true. We can't see an emotion that's also real. It's, you know, emotions are no less real because you can't see them. It's like, oh, I can't see uh, how you feel, so then you must not feel sad. I feel sad. I feel sad, you, whether you can see it or not. So the point is that not everything that, that, the definition of reality is not just what we can tangibly see. Words, even though they don't, we can't visualize their effect, words have an effect. So that's what the Radva says. Words uttered by human beings leave an impression in the atmosphere. And then he says, since that's the case, when there's a time of distress, when there's, let's say, a communal challenge, we get together and we pray in a loud voice. That's what he says. Therefore, all Israel are accustomed. Again, that first paragraph, page 168. Therefore, all Israel are accustomed when crying out in distress to call in a strong voice. Why a strong voice? To make a strong impression and pierce the atmosphere. The idea is the words make an impression. The louder the voice, the stronger the voice, the stronger the impression. So let's continue inside that last little paragraph, the uh, the second paragraph on the page, so Radvaz differentiates, not differentiates, Radvaz explains that at times it is necessary to call in a strong voice, thus making a strong impression. And now we're stuck with a question. So one second. Is strong voice good or not good? We just said that it's good. So then why aren't we shouting the Amida every day? Why aren't we proclaiming loudly to God? In other words, which, what's going on here? On the one hand, we say that we're supposed to pray quietly. We're supposed to pray respectfully. And when I say respectfully with, uh, you know, like whispering our prayers and being very quiet and being very, you know, like almost stoic in our prayers. And, and, the, and if we pray loudly, it means we don't believe in God. If we pray loudly, it means we're following the ways of idol, idol worshipers. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have a verse from Nehemiah that says, Nehemiah, that says they cried out with a great voice. On the other hand, we have that it says in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, you're supposed to pray with a loud voice. And on that same other hand, the Radva says that when things are stressful, when things are distressful, you're supposed to proclaim in a loud voice your prayers. <laughs> so what are we supposed to do? Is loud good or is loud bad? What's, what's going on here? You understand the question? We're just not sure what's going like what's, what's What's the ideal? Why do we have two different protocols? What's going on here? So he explains. He explains. 
based on Kabbalah. And now we're going to talk about letters being um, synonymous with revelation. And I think before we jump into the text, let me give you a little bit of background on this. And it's going to be very simple. Very simple. The way we reveal ideas is through language. I, I didn't say the way ideas exist necessarily, but the way we, the way we communicate, the way we um, reveal ideas is through language. Right? How does someone share an idea with you? They speak it. Right? They use language, letters, and la- words and language to, to articulate it. Or what, you read something. You open up a book and you read it. Oh, you have language on the, letters on the page that reveal something to you. So letters and language, language, which is comprised of letters and words, um, language is an act of revelation. It takes, so a simple example. Let's say I have, I'm feeling something. Let's say I'm feeling love, right? I'm feeling love toward a person. And I say to them, I love you. Now they know. It's good. <laughs> now they know. They didn't know. A minute ago, they didn't know. Now they know. Perfect. So what did my words do? My words revealed an emotion that was inside, and now they know what's going on inside me. Perfect. So the emotion wasn't created through the words, No but it was revealed through the words. Or let's say I have an idea in my head. It's like, I have an idea, like, I have, I have a good idea um, about something. But you don't know it. I know it, it's, it's stuck inside my head. When I articulate it to you, when I share it with, when I speak it to you, now you can know what I know. Now you know my idea. So let's say my idea is, we should go golfing in the rain. It's all the rage, kidding. Um, yeah, let's go golfing. You, you had no idea, now you know. Perfect. I meant top golf, which is covered in the whole thing. Anyway, the point is that without language, you wouldn't know how I feel. You wouldn't know what I'm thinking. But with language, all of those things that are inside my head and heart are now revealed to you. So language is the ultimate revelation. And how does language reveal? Through the letters, right? Through letters of articulation. The truth is, Kabbalah says, even within ourselves, we use language to reveal. Because even when you and I think about things, we typically think about things in language, right? So if, you, if your native tongue is English, you'll think in English. If your native tongue is Hebrew, let's say, you'll be thinking in Hebrew. If you're bilingual, I don't know, maybe you're thinking all over the place. No, I'm kidding, right? It's, it's interesting. Somebody who's bilingual, the question is, how, which language do they think in? Yeah? Anybody bilingual here? He's racing. Yeah? A little bit. Nice. But do you think Italian? I have the focus. I can switch. Nice. Interesting. I dream sometimes Italian. Really? That sounds very... Uh, dreaming in Italian sounds very romantic somehow. <laughs> I feel like there's an opera like in the dream. That's awesome. Well, I mean, it is a beautiful language, yeah. You know Hebrew and Yiddish and English? Yeah, exactly. What, what do you, where's your brain? No, so, I, so here's the thing. So for me personally... I'm an American boy, so for me, English is my go-to. Now, I know the other languages also, but definitely the way I think and the way I, you know, the way I within myself is for sure English. But I do know people that are very, very strong, like, like bilingual, like very strong, like strong in, in, in two languages. And the question is, how do they think? And I don't know, we, have to, we would have to ask them, but like, there's, you could think in one, in, in we, we think in language, that's the point. We don't just think ideas, pure ideas. We think in ideas as articulated in language, even for ourselves. 
Yeah, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. In other words, there's no such thing almost as a pure idea, even in our own heads, without it having been articulated in some form of characters, letters, or language, even in our own minds. Maybe Chachma has less letters than Bina. It says the Chachma is like the pure flash of inspiration before it's articulated. But in Kabbalah it says even Chachma has letters. But the letters are very translucent. You can't see them. It's like pure. It's like light, light letters. But there's still, even in Chachma, there's still letters. Certainly Bina is when you flesh it out in your own head. That definitely has, it's a linear process. That definitely has letters and characters and a narrative that's already built out. But even Chachma has letters. Whether you call them literal letters or potential letters or light letters, there are letters there. So what's the point? The point is what we're about to, I'm only saying this because we're literally about to say this, that letters equal, letters meaning like characters, like a letter. Letters, language, equals revelation. That's what characters, that's what language is about. So let's do this inside. Um, share my screen and we'll do this together. So we have now categories of letters. Let's do this. Now utterances, back inside, second to last paragraph. Now utterances, or in Hasidic parlance, letters, are revelations. Right? Letters, one second. Why utterances or in Hasidic parlance letters? That didn't even happen in the Hebrew. The hine close in your letters are revelation. I don't know. I'm not sure. It's, there's a little bit of a roundabout thing in the English that's adding some stuff. I know my name is on it as one of the editors. I did not notice this one, but anyway, it's like adding some new information in the English. In, in the Hebrew side, it says letters are revelation. That's what it says. Isis letters are gili, are revelation. For example, and he brings a verse from Isaiah, it says, Asa Boker, morning has come. Now, Asa means come. As, boker means morning, like Boker Tov, good morning. So, Asa Boker, morning has come. Asa means come. Asa is also related to, to the word osios, which are letters. Asa, osios, it's the same, same letters as letters. So, for example, morning has come from Isaiah 21, 12. First, there was darkness and concealment, night. And when the light arrives, Morning, it says morning has come, i.e. revelation has come. And it, it doesn't really work in the English. It works in the Hebrew side. Asa boker, the morning has come, is a reference to the revelation through language. Just like, bef so getting back to my personal example, let's say. So let's say I feel an emotion inside and I share it with you. So you didn't know how I felt before this. So to you, there was darkness because you didn't know how I felt. And now you know there's clarity, there's revelation. You didn't know what I was thinking. It was opaque, it was dark. And now you know exactly what I'm thinking, revelation. So language is a re revelatory experience. Communication is how we reveal things to someone else. Good. Let's continue. And there are numerous sorts of revelation. In other words, when, when, when a human being reveals themselves, it could be on any number of ways. And he goes, we've talked about this so many times, he goes through the spectrum of human experience from the top down. There's the revelation of the radiance of pleasure. You can reveal pleasure. In other words, you can tell someone what you like. You can tell somebody your will, what you want. You can tell someone your intellect, how you think. You can tell someone about your emotions, how you feel. Again, let's just go through all, all those four things. Pleasure, will, intellect, and emotion from the top down. Pleasure is the deepest. Pleasure is what you like. Like the, what gives you pleasure. That's the highest level. Deepest, the deepest part of the soul is associated with pleasure. 
Then there's will. Because that's what you like, well, this is what you want. So pleasure drives will. But first there's pleasure, and then there's will. And then there's intellect, how you think. And then there's the emotion, how you feel. But all of that, all, all four levels could either exist in a hidden way or in a revealed way. Like, I can know what I like, but you don't. I tell you what I like. Now you know what, 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 what pleasure is. I could tell you what I want before that you didn't know. That's revealing will. I could tell you how I think before that you didn't know. Revealing intellect, emotion. I could tell you how I feel, and that's revealed. So there are, there, each of these four levels, pleasure, will, intellect, and emotion, can exist in a hidden way and in a revealed way. Okay? So these are all, these are all forms of revelation. Let's continue. And these are, all of these are intense revelations in terms of their nature. In other words, all of these are relatively powerful. Your pleasure is a powerful thing. Your will is a powerful thing. Your intellect is a powerful thing. Your emotions are a powerful thing. All of these are powerful revelations. When somebody tells you, you know, how they're feeling, it's usually a big experience. Unless they're like, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know, something. Hey, th these can be very big revelations. Let's continue. Um, on page 170. All right, turn the page, please, to 170. There's also the revelation of the radiance of, a, of the soul's garments, thought and speech. So you can reveal your pleasure, your will, your intellect, your emotion, and you can also reveal the garments of the soul, not the soul itself, those four constituted parts of the soul itself. But these two are garments of the soul, thought and speech. You can tell someone what you're thinking about, not how you think, that's different. How you think is much deeper than what you're thinking about. How you think is how your brain works. That's a deep revelation, right? What you're thinking about is, I don't know, popcorn. It's not so deep, just popcorn, right? It's like, oh, what are you thinking about? Oh, I don't know, like uh, uh, the, the weather. Not, not a deep, that's thought. And speech is, you know, what, you, what, you're, what you're sharing um, through speech, which the truth is speech is the conduit of all of the above, Nonetheless, he breaks it out here as one of the soul's garments, the idea of speech, which could either be more deeper or, or less deep, more shallow, etc. The point is that the soul itself finds various forms of expression, revelation. So we have six dimensions here within the human re revelation experience. You can tell someone what you like, what you want, how you think, how you feel, what you're thinking about, and then you could just speak. I feel like that's more of like along the lines of uh, color commentary on a football game. It's like, wow, he really evaded the rush on that pass. Yeah, we just saw that. All right, got it. Not a deep, uh, not a deep idea, but nonetheless, it's being spoken. Let's continue. All revelations, he says, all six levels of revelations. All revelations are letters, i.e. expressions of the powers and garments of the soul. The first four being the powers of the soul, the last two being the garments of the soul. By the way, the difference between powers and garments is that powers of the soul are part of the soul itself. Garments can be taken off, can be switched, like, like, the, garment, ver like the body versus the garment. The body is the body. The garments can be taken off, put on, switched out at will. So what we're thinking about, popcorn or Kabbalah, that can be changed based on what we put in front of our noses. Right? How we think is already deeper wiring. But what we're thinking about, that's, we can change that at will. Um, likewise, what we speak about also can be modified through controlling ourselves. We could want to say something, but hold ourselves back. And we can instead say something nice instead of something not nice, etc. So those two are considered garments which can, be, which can be shifted. Let's continue inside. 
This is similar. And he gives a beautiful analogy. This is similar to the letters of the written Torah, which appear, which come in three sizes, appear in three forms, large, intermediate, and small. And let me explain. If you look at a Torah scroll open, you'll notice that the letters are written in Hebrew in a medium-sized font. The letters are, they're not, they're not big and small. And they're not all over the place. They're written in, in, a, in an average-sized letter. Kind of like when you look at the Hebrew side over here, things are pretty much written in a uniform fashion. However, there are times in Torah, certain letters, in certain verses, a handful of times, where you will find a large letter. And you will also find throughout Torah scattered small letters, which means that there are three, three font sizes. There's, well, the intermediate one is the standard size, but then there are uniquely large letters and uniquely small letters. Those are not done at random whenever the scribe decides to you know, bust out a large olive, right? but that's done in very precise ways based on our tradition. The certain letters, when they're smaller, they, they denote a less of an emphasis. So, again, without getting into details of the applications and practical examples, but I don't want to dive too deep into this, but the opening word Vayikra in the book of Leviticus, which is Vayikra, the aleph of Vayikra is small, which indicates Moses, and, and Vayikra means God called Moses. But this aleph is small to indicate that Moses was humble, even as being called by God. He was the guy that God called on a regular basis, but he, was, he remained small. He remained humble. So we have a small aleph to indicate that. So sometimes you have small letters to indicate something small or less big, right, obviously. Then you have large letters to indicate something big. So for example, in the Shema, it says, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elkein Hashem Echad, in Deuteronomy. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Hashem Echad, God Hashem Echad. Aleph, Chet, Dalet. The Dalet is large in the Torah. Not in your And the Siddur is it big also? It might be big in the Siddur. I don't think it is. Whatever. But in the, in the Torah, it's written with a large Aleph. Why a large Aleph? So the Talmud says, because you have to make sure you know it's a Dalet and not a Resh. So in Hebrew, a Dalet and a Resh look very similar. The Dalet, they each have, if I were to draw this, I'm going to draw this facing this way. So the Dalet and Resh both have a, have a horizontal line, horizontal line at the top. And then there's a vertical on the right side. So the difference is, yeah, I know. the difference is that a Dalit, it's not going to work with my hand because it keeps on going. Um, the Dalit is like this, right? There's a little, little, uh, hang, yeah, a little roof that hangs over on the, you know, on the other side of the, of the, of the vertical. The Reish is like this. The Reish makes a, a rounded, a little bit of rounded and a, and a it, it just, it flows. The Dalit is a little like this. Okay. So when it says Hashem Echad, it, it, it's a large Dalit. Why? So our sages tell us. So that you know that it's not a Reish. Because you know what Hashem Acher means? Another God. <laughs> we don't believe in another God. We believe in the, the one God. So literally, the difference between monotheism and idolatry is the little, the little shtickle, the little piece that hangs over or doesn't hang over. So to emphasize that, no, this is a Dalit, one God, and not Another god or other gods, we make the dial larger. In the, in the, so I'm just giving you an example, two examples of a small letter and a large letter. The point is that when there's a need for emphasis, so the letter, the font size changes. But typically, again, I mean, these are a handful of times throughout the five books of Moses. You'll have different sizes. Otherwise, it's written in that intermediate. But as Kabbalah explains it, the different letters 
sorry, the different size letters come from different supernal energies. Look what he says here. In the supernal spherot, that means in the, yeah, supernal spherot energies, each of these categories of letters, each of these size of letters represents a different category. The large letters represent Bina. That's the energy that's in the sukkah, as I mentioned before. The intermediate levels, that, letters, that's like the regular letters, are za. Za is um, chesed, gevura, teferet, netzachot, and yesod. The six primary emotional attributes. And those small letters are malchot. So you have bina, za, and malchot. And I don't know that I can give you a, uh, an explanation for this, but large represents from a higher source, middle-sized letters from a less high source, and the smallest letters from a lower source. So when you talk about the spherot and you line them up, you have Bina, Za, and Malchut. That's the way it is. So the large letters are big revelations from Bina, the middle ones are revelations from Za, and the small ones are small revelations from Malchut. Let's continue. The fact that a given letter may be written larger, indicates that it is of a higher category, even though they are all of identical shape. So in other words, even though a dalit is a dalit, no matter how you draw it, either small or big or, 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 or regular size, it's still the same letter, but when it's small, it denotes a smaller revelation, because letters are revelation. When it's larger, it denotes a larger revelation. So that's, that's, the, um, that's the protocol here. So let's continue inside. This applies to voice too. In other words, it's not only about written letters in the Torah, but it applies to voice. Because you guys remember why we're talking about all this in the first place? Should we say our prayers quietly or loudly? Here we go. This applies to voice too. Great voice, in other words, a loud voice indicates a higher category, a higher level, revelation. This is true, i.e., whether down or from on high, as, as, in the giving, as at the giving of the Torah. He's about to say, a great voice indicates big revelation, whether it's God or us doing the great voice. Either way, it's about big, powerful revelation. This happened at the giving of the Torah. As it is written in Exodus, the sound of the shofar was exceedingly mighty. When we got the Torah, there was a shofar blast. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that we sound the shofar in Rosh Hashanah, to remind us of the Sinai experience. It's kind of like a throwback. So the sound of the shofar, the Torah describes, was very mighty, very loud. And it also describes God's voice of the Ten Commandments as, quote, a great voice unending. Call God of Yosef. It says in Deuteronomy, God's voice was great and it went without end. So this indicates big revelation. What happened at Sinai? God gave us the Torah. God gave us the commandments. God revealed his greatest truth to us. That's a big deal. That, that requires a big voice. And this is also true from below to above, from us to God. Or whether, let's continue inside, middle of that uh, third paragraph on page 170. So, or whether, it's a long sentence here, or whether from below toward God, as in from Nehemiah that we quoted at the beginning of this chapter, they cried out in a great voice. And from the book of Jonah, they called out to God vigorously. Remember when the, remember the book of Jonah? We just read it on Yom Kippur. Remember when the boat was, uh, was getting beat up by the storm? And everyone's praying to God. They're all shouting to God. Why? Because they really meant it. They were really, they were really panicked. They really felt it. They're like, what's going on? This is, you know, our lives are at risk. So they, they really meant it. And they cried out to God vigorously. Not just like with a whimper, with a loud voice. The great voice, as we said before from the Radvas, the great voice attains greater heights. 
It goes up to a higher place. Why? For it comes from the depths of the heart. Because he is concerned deep within himself. He cries out with a strong voice. So the point is like this. I just want to connect the dots here for a second. We haven't answered the question yet, by the way. We'll get there in a second. But I want to just connect some dots. And here we go. Big voice, big letters and communication. Speech is revelation or expression. The bigger the voice, the bigger the expression. Whether it's from God to us, I got the Torah, it's not like page, you know, the New York Times section D, page 34. This is like front page news. This is like big, I don't know what type, what type. Yeah, the headline, but what, what type, uh, what, what number is that? Whatever it is, like a hundred point type or whatever it is, like that big type. I'm sure they use New York Times font at this point, or maybe not. So, so it's like the big headlines, God revealed himself, God speaks the Ten Commandments, that's a big revelation, or whether it's from us in times of distress. We speak with a loud voice, and that's why on Rosh Hashanah, when we have a lot to talk about, loud voice, Yom Kippur, loud voice. From the book of Nehemiah, they cry out with a loud voice. Jonah, they cried out with a loud voice. And the Rav says, in times of distress, we cry out with a loud voice. Why then is the Amida typically said quietly? Let's continue. But one who prays with a loud voice is small in faith. Is was explained by Rashi, that phrase from the Talmud, Tractate Brachot 24b, that says that one who prays the Amida with a loud voice is lacking in faith, that's explained by Rashi that it appears from the shouting that the worshiper is uncertain whether God can hear a whispered prayer. So he feels it's safe, it is safer to shout, and in addition, loud prayers disturb other worshipers. Rashi gives the rationale behind why we don't say that say, say the Amida loud, loudly typically. Number one, because it may stem from a place of uncertainty. I don't know if God can hear me, so I need to shout. Or we're concerned about disturbing other worshipers. So, Rashi, so, so he says inside, all this applies to regular prayer, which should be whispered. In other words, throughout the year, sure, but in times of distress, God forbid, the inner spark that binds man to God is revealed in every person with simple faith in God who works wonders. So let me explain what he's saying. When you're in your head, and you're wondering, does God hear me? Does God not hear me? So let me make sure to say it loud so you don't believe. Come on. Say it quietly and God will listen. But when you're not thinking in your head, but rather you're coming from your heart, you're in distress. So it's not that you don't believe in God. You believe in God. It's not that you're saying the prayers loudly because you're not sure if God can hear it otherwise. You believe in God. That's why you're praying in times of distress. You believe in God. You're not shouting because you're not sure about God. You're shouting because it's painful for you. That's the greatest demonstration of faith. Are you with me in the distinction? So, though, it's not what, what he's clarifying. It's so beautiful what he's clarifying here. He's clarifying that it's not, about the, it's not about how loud it is. It's about where it's coming from. Is it coming from a place of sincerity or insincerity? From a place of faith or lack of faith. So on a typical Tuesday, if you're praying the afternoon prayer in your house, right, at uh, 6 p.m., the after, well, the eve afternoon evening prayer, you're praying in your house at 6 p.m., and you're shouting the Amida because you're not sure if God can hear you, that's going to be a problem. But if, God forbid, there's a time of distress, and a person, because this issue is so deep and so painful and so and so, so heartfelt that they pour out their heart to God. That's not lack of faith. 
No one can misconstrue that as being, oh, that person is not sure if God's listening, so he's shouting it. That's not why he's shouting it. He's articulating the prayers loudly because it's coming from faith. That's what he's saying here. All this applies to, I'm, I'm going back two sentences. All this applies to regular prayers, to regular prayer, which should be whispered. But in times of distress, God forbid, the inner spark that binds us to God is revealed in every person with simple faith in God who works wonders. That line with simple faith in the English, it's a, it, it gets lost in that sentence. But in the core of the idea, that's the line. That's the line. Simple faith. Simple faith. The issue was, look at the top line of that paragraph. The issue was that when you pray with a loud voice, it, th it seems like you have small faith. Small faith. There's no small faith here at all. This is pure faith. This is pure faith. This typically loud, loud praying indicates lack of faith. But when a person is, God forbid, in distress, loud prayer indicates not lack of faith, but pure faith. God, because I have faith in you, when the chips are down, I know who to speak to. I know who to go to. I go to you, God. I hope this, this is making sense. Yes? Okay. The fear, what about the other concern that Rashi says? What about disturbing others? The fear of disturbing other, others is of no concern here. For if anything, one's awakening from the depths of the heart will move others, arousing them to repent as well. In other words, when it's a moment of necessity, like the Ravah said, communal necessity, if the community is in, is in a state of, 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 of challenge, so then, yeah, everybody should, everybody should be praying with a heartfelt way. And, 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 and you're not disturbing someone else. You're reminding them how important it is to pray loudly right now. Okay, this sort of prayer must be, must, must be with a great voice, he says. Similarly, let's continue, second to last line on 170. Similarly, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. When one, that's in a time of, 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 of um, distress. But likewise... On the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, when one must awaken the inwardness and essence as explained elsewhere, in other words, these are days of essence, of inwardness, of, of the depths of our souls, prayer has to be with an awakening of the inner heart and therefore a great voice. I added the word therefore, but that's, the, that's the, the flow of this. So what do we learn today? We're going to close it out here and continue with chapter 2. Please God, I believe next week. I think next week we'll be in the sukkah. That would be nice. Hopefully it won't be raining. Yeah, well, I'm not going to bring out the computer if it's raining. I'll tell you that much. That's not going to happen. Um, the soup I'll eat, but the computer, we're not going to fry. Um, so what's the, what's the big idea of today's class? To me, it's a continuation. It's not just to me. This is obviously a continuation of last week. The message is simply, when you're in a relationship... So number one, if you're in a relationship with somebody, so why are you shouting at them, right? It's like, <laughs> have a conversation. You're face-to-face -face with somebody, there's no need to shout. It's not respectful, typically. But when there's something weighing deeply in your heart, you might be passionate about it. And that's not a bad thing. It means the relationship is real and you're passionate. Are you with me on this? Oh, time out, one second, just so that no one's misconstruing. I'm not advocating shouting at, at our loved ones. What I am saying is like this. Tip, there, there's, the, there's the norm, and then there's the intense moments. And that's what we did today. We talked about the norm of prayer and the intense moments of prayer. One is done quietly, one is done with a great voice. And although one, the great voice is not appropriate in normal times, it's absolutely appropriate in intense times. The same thing is true in our relationships, right? You have a normal conversation. 
It needs to be a normal conversation. Right? Quiet, nice. But when there's something weighing deeply in your heart, it makes sense that you would be passionate about it. Because otherwise, why aren't you passionate about it? Like, it actually calls into question, what, are you passionate about it? Do you actually care? Like, and why don't you care? Why aren't you passionate about it? It's like, imagine if, um, you know, somebody proposes and says, uh, you know, I was thinking about it. You know, hey, would you marry me? I mean, like, okay, I know it happens also like that, but whatever, it could be fun also. But like, it's not a throwaway thing. It should be like a serious thing with a little bit of heartfelt emotion. Our prayers on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur need to be with heartfelt emotion. In times of distress, God forbid. And he's referring to like times of drought or pogroms and like communal challenges, right? Prayer needs to be from the depths of the heart. And it's going to come out loud. But you know what it means? It means that God is real. And that's really what today's about. Is God real or theoretical? If God's theoretical, then sure. Just whisper everything. You're good to go. But if God's real, if you have a real relationship, you're going to be passionate. You're going to be passionate about it. So basically the loud voice has to be authentic. It's got to be authentic. And that's... If you're just loud all the time, it's just protocol. If you're protocol. loud when you're passionate, then it's authentic. It's your real feeling. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so what it comes down to, and that, that's, that's, that's the perfect word for today. What it comes down to, and this is really what we came down to last week as well, it's about authenticity and a genuine relationship. Are we really in a relationship or not? If we're really in a relationship, it, and it works from both sides. If, if a parent is in a real relationship with a child, then the parent wants the best for the child. And if the parent sees the child doing something dangerous, the parent will correct the child. You know, if a kid's, God forbid, running into the street, the parent's going to grab the kid, right? And not necessarily use all the kind words like, um, are you sure you want to be in the street? Like, no, it's like when, if the, God forbid, a kid's in the street, you grab the kid, right? You push a kid even, because it's dangerous. When it's you real, might speak loudly to you might, and loud. you might speak loudly, and it shows the love. It shows the, the authenticity of the relationship. You know it's real, and you know when you know it's real also? It's like Abraham. You know what he says? To, it's, it's in uh, my son's uh, bar mitzvah. Don't, the notices will go out soon. Don't worry. No one missed any notices. They're going out soon. But in, in uh, Shalom's Bar Mitzvah Torah portion, Vayera, it's when God tells him about uh, he's, he's going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham says to God, will the judge of the whole world not act justly? He calls out God. He says, God, how could you do this? It's not right. Chutzpah. Chutzpah. How does Abraham speak? To, doesn't he believe in God? That's the point. Oh, he does. But he doesn't believe in God as a theory. He's in a real relationship. And in a real relationship, when the other one does something that you don't understand, that, that hurts you. You're, 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 you, you, you speak out. Not out of anger or out of anything else, but out of, out of investment in the relationship. So what's the point? Abraham was invested in the relationship. Moses was, uh, was invested in the relationship. What happens? What happens when... Um, yeah, we got, yeah, we got shorted on the... It's a whole story. Anyway, I need to be passionate about the cream cheese today because we had a whole debacle here. Back to our story. Talk loud. Um, huh? Talk loud about it. Talk loudly. Where are you, cream cheese? So what's the point? Moses, after the sin of the golden calf, God says, I'm going to take out the people and start again from you. And, and Moses says to God, if that's the case, erase me from your Torah. Take me out 
of your entire Torah. I don't want to have anything to do with this. It's chutzpah. Who speaks to God like that? You know who speaks to God like that? Someone to whom God is actually real. Because when, you, when, when, when it's only like uh, white, glo- uh, white glove or um, whatever the, 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 the expression is, kid, glo- kid gloves. With kid gloves, you handle God with kid gloves, you know what that means? God's not real. The more real God is, the more real the communication is. Like Harvey Siegel, right? In his prayer. I mean, he was asking the rabbit to pray on behalf of, you know, to God, obviously. But like, it's a real prayer. I have more to do. Give me the help that I need. Real prayer comes out from the heart, and we can't necessarily modify it or cut it or shape it, or whatever it is. Now, the truth is, now that we have all this explanation, we can ask on Hannah. Hannah was praying for a son, so why did she pray low? Why didn't she pour out her heart and pray loudly? So this I don't know. I can't answer for Hannah. But I'll tell you this. Typically, we pray low, but when it's, when it's heartfelt, we pray loud. And it's not a question of if we believe in God or not. We absolutely believe in God. You could see it in the person. It's not a volume question. You could see it. They believe. That's why they're talking to God in the first place. If they didn't believe... They'll be doing something else. So it's not a question of faith. What about disturbing others? They should also be praying loud. What do you mean? <laughs> Why are they not praying loud? Everyone should be praying loud. It's, distra- it's a time of stress, God forbid. So what's the point? Authenticity in the relationship. As Adam said, it's about being authentic. It's being authentic in our relationship. So as we segue out of the days of awe into the days of joy, as we move from Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which are in the rearview mirror, to Sukkot, which is literally, at least over here, right in front of us, the Sukkah, the Chabad Sukkah. As we move into the holiday of Sukkot, which is the one holiday that the Torah calls multiple times, it's a holiday of joy. We should be joyous on this day, on the, on the holiday of Sukkot. Let's, let's embrace this in our relationships. True joy in our relationships, true joy in our relationship with Hashem. It's about moving away from kind of this formal relationship in synagogue, with the long prayers, with fasting, into this, just being in this relationship in a hut. A hut that has a hug, which we've discussed many times. The three walls of the sukkah, one, two, and a little bit, is the hug of the sukkah. May we embrace Hashem in our lives in an authentic way this holiday. May the sukkah experience give us, surround us with, uh, with, with walls of love and with the uh, a roof of love as well. And may all our relationships be authentic. May, may this be a, a paradigm for our human relationships as well. You know, doesn't David say in like Psalm 78, he said, save me uh, until I declare thy strength unto the next generation. Yep. Yep. It's all about the relationship, the intergenerational relationship almost. Yeah, give me right. faith until Till I can, till I can pass it forward. All right. So on that note, um, I want to wish everybody a chag sameach, a happy holiday. The holiday begins tomorrow night. I'm going to invite everybody to Rabbi Shusman's sukkah. We'll see if he opens up. No, I'm kidding. So everyone's invited. <laughs> everyone's invited. The community's invited to the Shusman's sukkah uh, tomorrow night for opening night of Sukkot for a bite to eat. Um, what else do we have? We have services Tuesday and Wednesday for the holiday, 10 a.m. at Chabad. And then we have the IJA Sushi in the Sukkah Thursday night, Roll with the Pros. So you'll learn how to roll with top Atlanta sushi chef. And that's going to happen. Plus an all-you-can-eat sushi bar. Sushi for days. Thursday night. 
join us for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. And otherwise, if you need any holiday items or holiday information, let me know. All right, let's check in with our Zoom crew. Guys, good? Questions, comments? All good? Thank you, Mariana. Chag Sameach, everybody. All right, we'll close it out. Chag Sameach, everybody. Toba, yes? Good, good to yes. see you. All right, Alex, Henrietta, uh, Henriette, Mariana. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure. Tony, Chag Sameach, David, Donna, Toba, Fran, enjoy. Chag Sameach, everybody. Take care. Bye, guys. Thanks, beautiful class. Pleasure, pleasure. Thank you. See you guys. Lots of love. Thank you, thank you. All right. Um,